1 John chapter 2 is where I want you to go in your Bible. I want to pick back up in our study through this New Testament letter. You know, we spent the last couple of weeks in the first chapter of John's Gospel, which is a very important passage of Scripture, as it presents us with the truth of Christ's deity as the incarnate Word of God. And Christmas was all about celebrating the incarnation, the fact that God became a man, and he came to dwell among us in the person of his Son. And so knowledge of what John says about Jesus Christ in that passage, in John 1, will really help you understand what he writes to believers in a passage we're going to look at this morning from 1 John 2. Because a true understanding of who Jesus Christ really is, this is not just a peripheral issue, but it's something that is vital for the possession of eternal life. You know, if you were out in the ocean and you had a compass by which you were trying to navigate, a a, a faulty compass could produce catastrophic consequences. You've got to have a true compass. So if we're to be set on a right spiritual trajectory, then it's also true we need a sufficient compass, and our compass must unswervingly be pointed to the real Jesus. And that's what the Apostle John wants believers to know in this passage that we're going to read. I want you to find your place with me at verse 18, and I want to read all the way through to verse 27. 1 John chapter 2, verse 18, the Bible says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they were not of us, for if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they are all not of us. But you've been anointed by the Holy One, and you all have knowledge. I write to you not because you do not know the truth, but because you know it and because no lie is of the truth. Who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father. Whoever confesses the Son has the Father also. Let what you heard from the beginning abide in you. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, then you too will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he made to us, eternal life. I write these things to you about those who were trying to deceive you. The anointing you received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you, but as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. I want to speak from this subject this morning, separating fact from fiction. Or if I were to express it another way, distinguishing the truth from the lie discerning what is true from that which is false. That's what the Apostle John is dealing with uh, here in this passage of Scripture. 
Now, you know that the message of 1 John is important for the sake of assurance in the life of the believer. That's one of the things that we've kept coming back to in our study through this letter. It's absolutely critical for you to live with the assurance that you know God because assurance really is the key to joy and confidence in life. And within the five chapters that make up this letter, the Apostle John presents his readers with three cardinal tests by which we can discern whether or not we've truly come to know the Lord. And we've already considered a couple of these tests from earlier in chapter 2. The first test we encountered is the moral test or the ethical test. Do we obey the commands of God in His Word? Is there a consistent pattern of obedience in my life? Obedience that comes from a redeemed heart. John explains this in the first six verses of chapter 2. It's not the one who says he knows God, but the one who keeps his word. Where a genuine conversion to the faith has taken place, there will be a pattern of obedience in one's life. A second test that John mentions is the social test, and this involves the way that we relate to the other people in our lives. Do we love others the way that God has loved us in Christ? Is there a love for my brother and in my, uh, for my sister in my heart? Because this is evidence that I've passed from death unto life. Well, the passage that we come to now, John presents his readers with a doctrinal test. And the question to be asked is this question, do we believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who has come in the flesh? Because what a person believes about Jesus, this is the most important of tests. And according to the message of John, those who deny the deity of Christ, those who reject even the humanity of Christ, they fail the test. So think of it this way. The moral test involves the possession of the righteousness of Christ. The social test involves the possession of the love of Christ in your heart. But the doctrinal test involves whether or not you've come to possess the truth of Christ, whether or not you've come to truly understand and know the truth. And each of these characteristics are found in the lives of those who've come to know Jesus. So you'll notice that John is telling his readers within these verses just why exactly he's writing to them and what it is that he wants them to understand. Uh, He tells them in verse 21 that he's writing to them because of the truth that they already know. So in other words, he's not writing this paragraph to introduce them to some new truth, but he simply wants them to be reminded of the truth that they've already come to know and that they've already come to embrace. Uh, Phillips paraphrases verse 21 in this way, God has given you all a certain amount of spiritual insight, and indeed I've not written this warning as if I were writing to men who don't know what error is. I write because your eyes are clear enough to discern a lie when you come across it. So he's he's telling them that they know the truth, they've come to know the truth, and all he's doing is reminding them of truth which they have already come to embrace, but they simply need to be reminded of, which, by the way, that's part of the task of a teacher, part of the task of a preacher. It's It's not that we've gathered here for corporate worship this morning so that I can impart some new and hidden truth but that I could simply put the brethren in remembrance of truth that you've already come to know and you've already come to embrace, but we constantly need to be reminded of. 
I think it was Jerry Bridges who said that believers need to preach the gospel to themselves every day. And when I preach the gospel to myself every day and I'm reminded who I am in Christ, therein I discover fuel and passion and motivation to want to share the gospel with other people. And so uh, Peter says, I, in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he says, I intend always to remind you of the truth. To remind you of the truth that you've already been established in. Well, that's what John is doing here in a similar way. So he's writing to remind them of the truth that they already know. But then down in verse 26, he says that he's writing to them because they were facing some serious errors. There were those who were peddling false ideas about the nature and the identity of Jesus Christ. He says in verse 26, I write these things to you about those who were trying to deceive you. So he wants his spiritual children to be aware of the dangers that were posed by deceivers. If you're a parent who has raised children, then you know why this warning is so very important. We teach our children from a very early age to use the powers of discernment and discrimination. And the reason we do that is because we know something they don't know. At a young age, they don't realize that every stranger who comes up to them with a smile on their face has their best interest in mind. As parents, we know that a lot of deceivers put a smile on their face and appear harmless but really have harmful intent in mind. And so we guard our children. We tell our children, don't talk to strangers. When we're out in public, we tell our children, stay close to me. Why? Because the world is a dangerous place. And that's what the Apostle John is reminding his spiritual children of here. There are ideas out there, even ideas that the name of Jesus have been attached to, but these are not legitimate ideas. These are not true ideas, but they're false they're lies. They're destructive heresies. And the enemy wants to use those lies to lead people astray. And one of his chief tactics is to keep people in the dark as to who Jesus Christ really is. You know, the devil is content for a person to simply acknowledge Jesus as a good teacher. The devil has no problem with that. The devil has no problem if a person approaches Jesus as if he were a magic good luck charm or someone who existed for their sole benefit. But listen, the enemy of all souls works overtime to keep men and women blinded to the fact that Jesus Christ is God incarnate, God in the flesh. And as such, he's the only way to know God. The enemy wants to fight against the exclusive claims of Jesus Christ, where Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, the enemy fights against that. He doesn't want people to understand who Jesus really is. And so what the Apostle John then is doing in this passage, he's reminding his readers of truth that they already knew, but he wants them to be aware of those lies that were being peddled all in the name of Jesus but were not true. Now, I've taken this passage from verse 18 through verse 27, and I've tried to divide it up under three headings. And I only deal with the first heading this morning. But the first heading that I want you to consider with me is the reality of satanic deception. Because John clues his readers in on the fact that the enemy is very much active in the world and that spiritual deception is a very real danger. He's going to follow that up uh, a few verses later by 
really emphasizing the need for spiritual discernment. He says that the people of God need to be discerning. You better be careful what you listen to and what you embrace as truth. And then he's going to follow that up by underscoring the importance of sound doctrine. So you've got the reality of satanic deception, the need for spiritual discernment, and the importance of sound doctrine all emphasized in these verses. So notice with me first, this first heading, the reality of satanic deception. You'll notice there, verse 18, John is referring to his readers once more as his children, which again, this reveals the depth of his concern as a spiritual father and a pastor. But here, he's expressing his concern that they not become prey to deception from the enemy. He wants his readers to be aware of the reality of spiritual deception and where it originates from. So a couple of things to notice here. Notice first John's description of the times. He says here in verse 18, It is the last hour, children. And as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. So by using this phrase, last hour, he's connecting his thoughts in the verse to what he's previously said uh, in, in verse 17 and the verses before that, where he said that Christians must not love the world or things in the world, such as the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes, the sinful pride of life. And he says in verse 17 that the reason for that is because the form of this world, this present world system, is passing away along with its desires. Ultimately, this world is fleeting along with its desires, which means the best that the world can offer you is temporary. And, and the language that he uses in those verses suggests that the world is at the present passing away. It's not that it will pass away, but that it's presently passing away. Which, by the way, this ought to be an encouragement to you when you look around and you see so much evil in the world so much untruth in the world masquerading as truth so much that's not in keeping with God's word or God's will for creation and it grieves your spirit you see, you see so much inhumanity in the world and even injustice in the world and so much sin and evil and all this that and the other be reminded of the fact and be encouraged by the fact that the form of this world is passing away and so this really sets up what John is saying in this next verse, verse 18, that's why he can say that it's already the last hour, because this is his way of setting the times in context. That word last there, it's the word eschatos, the same word we get eschatology from, or the doctrine of last things. So John says it's the last hour, and someone says, okay, well, how could it be the last hour when John wrote these words in the first century? Nearly 20 centuries ago, John is saying that it's the last hour. How can it be that way? And there's been close to 2,000 years of history that have come and gone since then. Well, you really need to understand what's meant by that expression because often it's used interchangeably throughout the New Testament with other expressions such as the last time, the last days, the last hour. Uh, these are expressions used to identify the period of time which commenced with the first coming of Jesus Christ and will culminate with his visible return in glory at the second coming of Christ. So John uses this term to really explain how a new day has dawned for the world in the light of Christ's death and resurrection. 
Up until that point, the Old Testament law, the sacrificial system under Moses had prepared the way for the redemptive work of Jesus. You bear in mind what Paul says in Galatians chapter 4 when he says that in the fullness of time God sent forth his son into the world. At a fixed point on God's calendar, Christ came to suffer and to die, to be raised to life again, to open up the way to God. And so really there was nothing more that needed to be done as far as salvation was concerned. That's why Jesus could say on the cross with his final breaths, it is finished. Warren Wiersbe says it this way, all of Old Testament history prepared the way for the work of Christ upon the cross. And all history since that time is merely preparation for the end when Jesus will come and will establish his kingdom. And so the last hour, which began back in John's day, has been growing in intensity ever since. So when you think about the last days, keep in mind the fact that the last days really began with the first advent of the Messiah. And those last days will come to an end There are last days for the last days. And those last days will come to an end when Jesus Christ returns again. So someone says, well, why in the world is it that this period of history, at least 2,000 years of history, can be referred to as the last days? Why is there so much time that's being passed between the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus? Listen to me. Because it all testifies of the patience of our God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The fact that God is doing something at present, he's building his church, and the gospel is going forth to every nation, every tribe, every tongue. The church is being built. People are being saved. But listen, there will come a point in time when that window of opportunity will close. In this unique period of time that we live in, known as the age of the church, will come to a close. So these last days, things are going to continue to be more intense until the last days of the last days. And that's something that Paul mentions in 1 Timothy chapter 4 when he says that the Spirit expressly says that in later times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits, doctrine of demons, 2 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Peter says in 2 Peter 3, know this, scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. So we're living in a unique period of time. The Lord is building his church. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. But for that reason, the enemy is fighting against the church, and he seeks to undermine the church in the work of evangelism and mission. And often he'll do this from the outside by stirring up hostility and persecution against the church. Oh, but in a more subtle and sinister way, he'll do it from the inside through doctrinal confusion. The enemy wants to muddy the water when it comes to the truth. He'll want to muddy the water when it comes to this issue of who is the real Jesus. And so you'll notice John uses a word that many associate with the end times, and it's the word antichrist. 
He says the believers are aware of the fact that Antichrist would step onto the scene in the last days. Now, that word Antichrist is only found five times in Scripture, each of which is found in the epistles of John. And so it's John who describes for us what Antichrist is all about. And according to what he says, it all has to do with denial of the true and historic faith, which has been, it's been delivered once for all to the saints. You pay careful attention to what he says here as he uses this term Antichrist three times. Verse 18, children, it's the last hour, and just as you've heard, Antichrist is coming. And even now, many Antichrists have appeared. And from this, we know it's the last hour. If you want to know what he's referring to, we'll look down in verse 22, and he basically defines what the Antichrist is all about. He says, who is the liar but the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. So here in verse 18, he's referring to a future Antichrist figure who will show up in the last days. It's an idea we're first introduced to in Daniel. Jesus himself said that false Christs would appear in the last days. But a biblical understanding of the Antichrist recognizes that not only is it a future somebody who will embody evil, but it's also a spirit that's presently at work in the world, and it's a system under satanic direction. Now, sometimes people say, well, who is the Antichrist? Do you think that the Antichrist is alive and now and ready to be revealed? Folks, all of that is useless speculation as far as the Scripture is concerned because it's not up for us to try to pick and choose and try to figure out whether or not maybe it's this politician or this particular world leader. All of that is useless speculation. And that's really not what John's purpose is in this passage. He refers to this future end-time Antichrist, but notice that his emphasis is on the many Antichrists that are already in the world. The plural He's referring to false teachers who are spreading false ideas about who Jesus really is. And when you understand any idea, any religious idea, any philosophical idea that denies the reality of who Jesus Christ is as he's revealed in the word of God, as he's presented in the gospel, then you're able to understand that that idea is antichrist in origin. No matter how religiously Intriguing it might be, any idea that strikes at the deity of Christ, the humanity of Christ, the authority of Christ, the scripture says this is anti Christian. So John is giving us a description of the times here. But then notice how this involves a denial of the truth. And again, his emphasis, many antichrists have come, thereby revealing the lateness of the hour in man's world. Jesus said that the last days would be marked by such false claims. He said over and over again, make sure no one leads you astray. Matthew 24, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. Jesus said that in the last days there would be plenty of people who would show up claiming to represent him, speak in his name, but everything that they would share would be totally against his nature and against the truth that's revealed in Scripture. 
Matthew 24, 11, many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. Mark 13, see that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name saying, I am he and will lead many astray. Luke 21, see that you're not led astray. So over and over again, uh, Jesus calls upon his followers to be on guard against spiritual deception. Watch out for those who falsely claim to speak in his name, who come along and say they have some kind of new insight so as to lead people astray from the truth. And that's what John is referring to here. Antichrists in the plural. Emissaries of the evil one who've been around since the beginning and the essence of their claim, it's seen there in verse 22, they deny the truth of who Jesus is. And oftentimes they wear Christian clothing. Yet they deny the truth. Now someone says, okay, well where do they come from? Do they come from the outside? Well, not according to what John says here. But notice he says they went out from us. So there in verse 19 then, he's describing a departure from the faith. Description of the times involving a denial of the truth, but notice there's a departure from the faith. He says, these went out from us, but they were not of us. The idea is these antichrists who were spreading a lie had once openly identified with the people of God. They had openly associated with the believers throughout the churches in Asia Minor. And so many have said that John's referring to these Gnostic teachers who had infiltrated the churches who perhaps made enthusiastic responses to the gospel and seemed legitimate. They seemed like legitimate followers of Jesus, but it became quick that they were really not because they began denying the truth of who Jesus really is. And they were spreading these lies that, well, the Spirit of Christ came upon the man Jesus at his baptism. And then the Spirit of Christ left Jesus at his crucifixion. And John is saying, listen, this is not the truth. This is not what you know. This is antichrist in origin. And you need to be able to separate the facts from the fiction. Someone says, well, why in the world is it so sinister? Well, keep in mind what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 when he says that such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as the apostles of Christ. And he says, no wonder, for Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Don't think that the devil, when he shows up, he's always going to come in the red suit with the horns and the pitchfork and the tail and 666 emblazoned on his forehead. Oftentimes, he'll present himself as an angel of light. And he'll introduce ideas that are popular as far as the culture is concerned, that seem right as far as human wisdom is concerned but ultimately it's a satanic lie and the enemy wants to spread that lie so as to keep people in the dark as to who Jesus really is this is why you need to be discerning what you believe about marriage and what you believe about gender and what you believe about life and the origin of life in the universe There are anti-Christian ideas that oftentimes wear Christian clothes. In fact, this kind of thing is only going to get ramped up 
the more we are living in last days. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, Paul says as much in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. He says, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. Now here he's referring to the Antichrist. That final world leader who opposes Christ. But notice he says that there's a rebellion that's going to come first. The word translated as rebellion, it's the word we get apostate from or apostasy from. Some translations say the falling away will happen first. The idea, those who, there will be those who at one point in their life openly identify with the people of God, even profess to know Christ. But when cultural pressure gets ramped up and lies become more widespread, they buy into the lie and they fall away. They rebel. And the fact that they are not living surrendered lives to the authority of Jesus Christ proves that they don't know Jesus, no matter what they say. So, so Paul is describing something that is final, something that will be defined and pronounced and true of the last days. This kind of thing's always happened, but the closer we get to the second coming of Jesus, the more this kind of thing is going to happen. Which, by the way, you ought to pay close attention to words now like deconstruction. It's popular now for, especially millennials, you hear deconstruction associated with their faith, their religious views, those kinds of things. Deconstruction. Let me tell you something. Our God is in the process of construction. Amen. The enemy wants to deconstruct your faith. God wants to construct your faith and build you up in the precious and most holy faith delivered once for the saints. I've almost even got to the point where on social media you, you see this high profile leader who has fallen or this particular leader who was influential who's now come out to deny the faith that he once preached. This kind of thing's happened quite a bit in recent years. And as much as it's shocking whenever we read that, we ought to be reminded of what the scripture actually says that in the last days there are going to be many who formerly associated with Christianity, who formerly identified with the people of God, they're going to defect and they're going to turn away from the faith and they're going to forsake the fellowship. You say, well, how is it possible? Uh, how is it possible for these to fall away? Well, you know, Jesus had something to say about that. Go, go in your Bible to Luke chapter 8. And look at what Jesus says in Luke chapter 8. Luke's account of the parable of the sower. You know the parable of the sower where Jesus describes the at least four responses that are often made to the gospel. Luke chapter 8 verse 4, a great crowd was gathering and people came from town after town to him, and he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. As he sowed, some fell among the path and was trampled underfoot, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell among the rock. As it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. 
Some fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, and some fell into good soil and grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now go down to verse 11. The parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Now Jesus then begins to explain what he meant in in the parable. Verse 12, the ones along the path are those who have heard. Then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they might not believe and be saved. So some people are deceived from the beginning. They renounce the faith, they buy into lies because they're deceived by the evil one. That's what Jesus is saying there in verse 12. Verse 13, he says, the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, they receive it with joy. The idea is there's an outward enthusiastic response to the message of the gospel. But they have no root. They believe for a while, but in a time of testing, they fall away. So unlike those in verse 12 who were deceived these in verse 13 are disillusioned maybe, maybe Jesus was a means to an end not the end Now, a lot of people make enthusiastic responses to the gospel because let's just face who really wants to go to hell when they die nobody and so a lot of people see Jesus as nothing more than just this heavenly insur- uh, fire insurance salesman And they'll make an enthusiastic response to the gospel, but they become quickly disillusioned when it comes to discipleship and where the rubber really meets the road. Verse 14, as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they're choked by the cares, the riches, the pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. So you've got some who are deceived fall away, some who are disillusioned, fall away. These in verse 14 are distracted and fall away. But verse 15, as for those in the good soil, these are those who hearing the word, they hold it fast in an honest and good heart and they bear fruit with patience. So it's just Jesus who's simply saying where there is good soil, where the seed has truly taken root in a person's life, where there has been genuine conversion, there will be life, there will be fruit, and there will be perseverance. Are you tracking? Now you go back to what John says back in 1 John chapter 2 when he talks about these antichrists who went out from us, but they were not of us. In other words, they seemed legitimate, when they initially showed enthusiasm and responded to the gospel, joined the church, but in time it became apparent that they were truly not of us because they went out. And the message that they preached about Jesus was not the message that's been delivered once for all to the saints. In reference to the turmoil of the last days, Jesus said the one who stands firm until the end will be saved. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean those who remain firm somehow earn their salvation? That's not what that means. But it means that standing firm is evidence of genuine saving faith. Those who are truly in Christ will persevere in the faith. That's what that means. 
And listen to me, this is why the writers of the New Testament are frequently calling upon believers to examine their faith. That's why Paul says in 2 Corinthians 13, examine yourselves to see whether or not you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Hebrews chapter 3, take care, brethren, lest there be in you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. He goes on and says, those who've truly come to share in Christ... They demonstrate that by holding on to their original confidence until the end. So that doesn't mean that perseverance doesn't mean that I try my best to hang on. And if I'm successful, I'm going to be magically rewarded with the key to heaven at the end. Thereby securing and earning my salvation. That's not what this means. But what the scripture teaches about the perseverance of the saint is that it's the work of the Holy Spirit of God to convict us, to bring us to faith in Jesus Christ. And even when we would be tempted to wander off and to do our own thing, somehow the Spirit of the living God in His power keeps us progressing along in this journey of faith. It's what Philippians 1.6 says, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. You know, we sing about it from time to time. I love this song. I first heard it by Keith and Kristen Getty. It says something along these lines, When I fear my faith will fail, Christ will hold me fast. When the tempter would prevail, He will hold me fast. I could never keep my hold through life's fearful path for my love is often cold. He must hold me fast. Those he saves are his delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in his holy sight, he will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by him at such a cost, he will hold me fast. For my life he bled and died. Christ will hold me fast. Justice has been satisfied. He will hold me fast. Raised to him with endless life. He will hold me fast. Till my faith is turned to sight. When he comes at last. Let me tell you something. He who began a good work in you will see it through until the day of Christ Jesus. That's not to say you're not to examine yourself and test yourself to see whether or not you truly are in the faith. I think it was Adrian Rogers who said it this way, faith that fizzles before it finishes was flawed from the first. So John is simply encouraging believers. He's saying, listen, there are lies untruths, masquerading, wearing Christian clothes, but you need to know something. If it's not in keeping with the apostolic doctrine which you know, which you've heard, which you've come to believe and embrace, which has changed your life, no lie is of the truth, John says, but it has its roots in satanic deception, which is why we need to be discerning. Would you stand with me for prayer this morning? I want to stop here. But not before I leave you, maybe with just some closing principles quickly before we pray. Especially as this really relates to a new year and all that a new year may involve. 
You need to be on guard against spiritual deception because it's very real. You need to realize that there's an enemy who wants to seduce you. But you know something? Aren't you glad? Greater is he that is in me than he that's in the world. The spirit of the living God is the spirit of truth who leads believers into the truth. You know, something you really need to do this year is prioritize the truth of Scripture, even memorize it, hide it in your heart. The Scripture says, Thy word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. You are to prioritize involvement in 2022 in this local church. Make the most of every opportunity that you have to be under the preaching and the teaching of God's word. To soak in it, to not just learn, but to obey obey and then you know something we really need to evangelize friends family and people that we encounter we need to introduce people to the real Jesus the one who died for sin the one who rose again God in human flesh who came who dwelt among us who ascended to heaven and who's coming again Would you bow with me for prayer this morning? If you don't know the real Jesus, I want to ask you this question right there where you are. Why not repent of your sin? Believe the truth of the gospel. Christ died for your sins, was buried, rose again from the dead. Confess him as your Lord. Be obedient. Follow him in believer's baptism. We've got baptism coming up in just a few weeks. Maybe you need to come and speak to one of our pastors on staff and say, you know, I want to be baptized. I need to publicly declare my faith. Publicly identify with the real Jesus. I want to invite you to come. Lord, in Jesus' name, thank you for the truth. And Lord, we live in a world where lies are in abundance, but the form of this world is passing away. Jesus Christ has overcome. And our faith and our trust is in him. Lord, may we be discerning. Lord, may we be teachable. Have a submissive spirit when it comes to your word. God, I pray for my family and I pray for my friends. And Lord, I pray for our city. Our city desperately needs to know the truth of who Jesus Christ is. And Lord, how will they ever know unless we as your people get intentional about sharing the true Jesus? both in our words and in our deeds. We pray all of this in his precious name. Amen.